Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we unlock the secrets, tips, tricks, and mistakes of world-class data science executives and leaders. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. I'm a data science executive, and I'm currently working in a healthcare AI company. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, For the regular listeners, uh, you may have noticed that we have been running uh, live webinars. Uh, So thank you very much for everyone that has been coming to those. We've had a a few hundred people coming to every webinar. Uh, We're doing them as live conversations with a a guest and getting audience questions uh, throughout. If you're interested to find out about our webinars, please go and sign up on the website on datafuturology.com. And uh, obviously, all the webinars are free and accessible, um, and they, we've had great, great feedbacks of them so far. Today, my guest is Maria Aretulaki. She is a very, very impressive data science leader. She has been working in voice for about 25 years. So definitely like an early pioneer in voice. She is one of the leaders in the field, and uh, she tells us about what uh, voice user interface uh, design is, uh, how voice has evolved, the the usage of voice, both analysis and generation, how that has evolved in business. And over the past about 12 years, um, she started her own business, which is Dialogue Connection. And she tells us about the work that they've been doing there as well. She is extremely impressive. Um, I learned so much speaking with her. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here is the episode with Maria. Data Futurology's audience is continuing to grow and grow. Did you know that over 12,000 other data enthusiasts across the globe are listening to this episode as well? Well, that's over 20,000 weekly listens to hear content that is loved and shared in the data community. To see how your brand can be featured here or how else Data Futurology can connect you to your audience, visit datafuturology.com forward slash sponsors or leave an audio message via the show notes below. Connect with us so we can collaborate. We can help you grow the presence of your business and you would also be helping to continue to grow Data Futurology. Thanks. Maria, thank you so much for making the time. How are you doing today? Hello, <laughs> I'm great, thank you. We have amazing weather here in the UK and we are allowed to go out for a bit, so it's perfect. <laughs> wow, that is that is um, great to hear. Good, good yeah. turnaround. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to start the start a discussion by asking you about your, your origin story and how you got started in the world of data. Um, you were, mm. you know, you were, you are such a pioneer. You got you got into the space um, so Quite early. <laughs> yeah. How how did that happen? That that you were. Um, how did you get into into a data space in the first place? Right. So um, I originally I was a linguist, theoretical linguist. So I started off in the humanities. I studied English literature and and linguistics. And uh, I, after my my first degree, I mean, I always I wanted to come to the to come come and uh, live and study in the UK because obviously you know having studied English that was the natural thing for me to do. But uh, so when I was looking for a, to do a masters, I was looking at um, I was trying to get funding, 
and um, uh, apparently they were giving funding for translation. But yeah. I was um, I wasn't particularly interested in translation. But in looking through the list of available courses and you know masters, I found this course in in Manchester where I still am <laughs> on machine translation, and I was like, oh, yeah. machine translation. That's translation, but it's also computing. And I wanted to go into computing anyway. I I had started back then during my in my summers. I was doing like a course in basic. And uh, back then, you know, back then there was no internet actually. So yeah. we're talking. We're talking. Oh, that basic course was in eighty uh, seven or something in eighty seven. And uh, so when I, you know, by the time I was looking to do a master's, that was 91. And in 91, I came to Manchester to study machine translation. And that was basically my transition to computational linguistics. And, and, and you know, wait, until, where did you come until, from? Sorry. Oh, sorry, Greece. Oh, uh, nice. In, yes. You cannot tell already from my accent. And um, uh, so... And, and that was the first I, I was hearing about machine translation or, or even computational linguistics. And yes. uh, I was like, oh, great. I want to go into computing. It's relevant to linguistics. That's interesting. And uh, during my master's uh, here in Manchester, I, I learned another programming. Uh, well, I actually properly learned a programming language. It was Prolog back then, which is like Lisp. It's declarative or was. I'm not sure it, it still exists a declarative programming language. And that was actually so interesting because uh, I needed to think of the rules I, I had to, mm. to define. But at the same time, I was defining the whole world uh, that, I, 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 that I wanted to define. And that was, yes. I, it was just a completely new perspective uh, into things. And um, uh, I mean, obviously, back then, machine translation was already uh, actually it was kind of hand. Um, it was like manual rules, right? Where you were defining uh, how uh, an, a Spanish sentence was uh, could be switched, could be translated into an English sentence, and you know what you switch around, what you may maybe can get rid of, or you know, in the case of Greek. Uh, you know, you don't always need to specify the subject or the word order can be uh, can be random because you know from the cases and the inflection who is the subject, who is the object, etc. So, so, but but anyway, that was like the, my my introduction to the world of machine learning, really, because I needed to teach the computer how to understand uh, one language and translate it into a, a different language and. So how to think in terms of, of rules and, uh, and context and all kinds of things. Uh, and then after my master's, I, well, I like the natural <laughs> progression was to do a, a PhD. <laughs> and I, I got funding from Canon, actually, you know, the printing company. <laughs> yeah, wow. Uh, I got a PhD scholarship to uh, actually work on dialogue systems. But I rebelled because I discovered neural I networks. This. And I was like, uh, I want to do something with neural networks. I discovered neural networks and I thought it's like as if I had discovered God. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> this, this, needs to, this has to be the answer to everything. And uh, so basically I decided to uh, 
to use uh, artificial neural networks to do automatic text summarization. Uh, so still working with text input, right? Not 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 speech where I am in now space. I am and, I am in now. So in and your this is in the early nineties, right? That was ninety three when right. I discovered wow. neural networks. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Okay, sorry, continue. So yeah, my I, I thought that for my reason because because language is complex and because back then you know you, uh, the, the existing research was oh we're using your networks to maybe learn how to pronounce words you know like very mm -hmm. basic very basic level and I was thinking oh how am I gonna how am I gonna use neural networks to do like high level processing um, as would be required in uh, um, uh, in text summarization. So I thought, okay, maybe we can use a hybrid system <laughs> where mm -hmm. some bits, the bits that symbolic processing can do the best, uh, uh, we use symbolic processing for that. And uh, the more fuzzy processing, like which sentence, which original sentences in, in a news article can be used uh, for producing the summary of that article. So deciding importance, I thought that's a fuzzy thing. Even humans do not agree. I mean, like a human, um, humans deciding on which sentences in a news article uh, are important and should be uh, included in the summary. Uh, um, agreement among humans was, I don't remember exactly now, but I think it wasn't more than like 58%. So I knew a network yeah. getting like 56% was already big for me. So anyway, so yeah, basically neural networks I discovered the fact that uh, there were actually, even back then, uh, I think I, rem I remember I, I attended uh, an AI workshop on um, basically uh, combining uh, hybrid approaches, you know, combining symbolic with uh, connection is um, processing. So even wow. back then, it, it was, uh, people were considering this. And, um, but of course, back then, your networks were quite uh, basic. We didn't have anywhere near the amount of data we have now. So, so yeah, anyway, after my PhD, <laughs> I got uh, an EU scholarship to do a postdoc in Germany. So that brought me from the UK to Germany for the first time ever. I wasn't I, I, I wasn't speaking German. I had never been to Germany. But <laughs> yeah, that was the postdoc was on spoken dialogue systems and spoken dialogue management. And that's what got me into speech back in ninety six ninety six. And um and and since then, you know, I was in academia for a while. Then I switched to a research institute, which was like a, um, uh, like a mixture of academia and industry. Uh, I worked, I was a I was project manager on, uh, or local coordinator on a big uh, German project uh, funded by the German Ministry for Education or something. And that was actually the precursor to the Internet of Things, really, more really? or less. Or, or voice assistance because yes. we were using speech to control. Um, we're trying. It was a multimodal assistance for the house, the car, and public terminals. And we we were considering scenario like uh, 
choosing a crime film to watch on TV, and the mm-hmm. assistant would choose, would go through all the channels and all the titles and, you know, find the, the right genre and the right program that plays at the specific time window, specified, whatever. And then you say, oh, and make the room darker, so you would dim the light and draw the curtains. So, you know, all these things that we are wow. now doing. That was a research, German research project back then. Obviously, you know, like 20 different partners, yes. uh, all the white Seriously. goods, German companies like Grundig and Löwe and Siemens anyway. And so, yeah, a big research project. But, yeah, that was... Um, uh, um, uh, yeah, something that that is being done now. That was like yeah. a, a approach <laughs> to the problem back then. Uh, but, when, but when was that? Yeah, even back. Sorry. When, when was that? When, when you were that? doing that project? Yeah. Okay, that was ninety eight, ninety eight to two thousand. My God! Wow. <laughs> um, and. And where, where, where were you based in Germany? Was that after, after your postdoc? Bavaria. So no, I, I was in the same place where I went for my postdoc. So that was the University yeah. of Erlangen-Nuremberg, which yes. is one of the most innovative. Uh, I, I see now on LinkedIn they're the doing great things still. Uh, it was the Department for Pattern Recognition. And uh, so they were doing image processing and speech processing. Well, we could say the same about you. So innovative, working on these things, you know, so far in advance of um, when the rest of the world would get to see them. Um, yeah, neural networks in the 90s, um, NLP, um, yeah. Internet of Things. This is this is uh, amazing. So this was yeah. part of the research institute that was that was sort of part research, part academia. Um, I mean, so part research, part uh, industry. Sorry. Yeah, so that was uh, the University of Langen-Nuremberg, but also some other universities, and it was actually called the Bavarian. Oh God, I remember it in German. <laughs> the it was called Forvis, the Bavarian Research Center for uh, Knowledge-Based Systems. Uh-huh. Um, and um, so yeah, AI, basic AI, I guess, but also actually in. Uh, applied AI because uh, yeah. they were always involving um, uh, industrial partners in every research project. And um, by that time, you know, after so many years in academia, you know, my first degree, my master's, my PhD, the postdoc, by that time I was ready for industry. And also, you know, with the flirting with the industry through that project anyway, I was like, oh, I'm ready now. I want to get my heart, my hands dirty in industry. And uh, the first thing I did was join a startup. <laughs> and that was 2000. And that was the internet oh. that three years later burst. <laughs> yes. I, uh, I joined a company that um, used to be called Enterprise back then. Uh, they uh-huh. quickly switched uh, the name to, change the name to Semantic, Semantic Edge. And they still exist now after, uh, you know, after the, after they went bust and there was a management buyout, um, the company still exists. It's still, I think, rather small. I mean, back then it became, you know, it was like small, big, 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 massive, and then <laughs> now it's, it's small, but they're still going after all these years because, as I said, I joined them in 2000, yeah. and uh, that's that's what got me into the world of 
IVRs, which is the interactive voice response, uh, yeah. like call center automation uh, systems that, that use um, uh, speech recognition, really. Speech recognition yes. that is speaker independent. So it has to work for anyone uh, calling, uh. right? And that was my really my introduction to the world of data because obviously in order to recognize uh, all kinds of speakers with all kinds of uh, you know age, sex, accents, uh, accents um, uh, even having a cold, being angry, whatever, all kinds of, of uh, different speech signals. Uh, you need to have trained the speech recognition systems on uh, massive amount amounts of real world data, and that's the, basically that was my my introduction uh, into the world of big data, um, IVRs, speech IVRs. Uh, as I said in the beginning, through a, <clears throat> a startup, then I I started working for um, bigger and ever bigger speech companies. Until 2008, when uh, and and you have to think back then. I mean, all this time, right from 2000, I was basically doing voice user interface design. Yeah. Or what we now call, you know, all the voice first voice voice design, VUX voice user experience, um, and and VUI design. Uh, but up until then, because I was still in Europe, right, Germany. IVRs were not that big in Europe, so uh, I was my role was very small. And for every project, I mean, usually we're approaching people to do a project, but uh, rarely would it you know, go live, materialize. So it was more or less mainly uh. free sales, you know, trying to show how the system would work, you know, example dialogues and stuff like that. But uh, it hadn't taken off yet, and so. My, my role was quite limited until, so in two, 2008, I set up my own consultancy, Dialog Connection, that I've been working through since. Nice. So, you know, last couple years on, and, and less than a year later, things started taking off, and uh, I have been lucky to, you know, have always had consulting work because, you know, there, there, there are so many IVRs now also in Europe, and uh, so many IVRs to build, so many existing IVRs to fix. You know, there's always something to do. And obviously, with the advent of uh, you know Siri, and then later all the you know mm -hmm. Alexa and all the um, uh, voice assistants. Now uh, there is also that type of work. You know, the IVRs always, but also um, uh, voice assistants. And uh, and with voice assistants, I mean the the two the two different types of systems, they have loads of similarities, but also loads of differences. And I can talk about those later. But anyway, talking about my 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 uh, introduction and how I got into into data science, um, you know, through these real world projects and real world IVRs, I have analyzed my, myself uh, thousands and thousands of hours of uh, real calls uh, with uh, you know call, callers with IVRs, then callers with uh, agents after speaking to an IVR or after failing with an IVR, complaining about the IVR in queue in the queue or later with the with the human agent. Uh, mm -hmm. I've analyzed 
thousands of hours and and that's so invaluable because you see how the AVR is really doing, how people are really reacting to uh, what the AVR says and how it mm -hmm. says it. Uh, obviously, grammar, coverage, and things like that. But also, you you get an insight into things <clears throat> you haven't even thought about. Like not not all not just me as a designer, but also like the business um, uh, the business units. You may uh -huh. discover that people keep asking for a specific service that you're not offering, and then they think, oh, maybe we should offer that. You know, that's a good idea. Mm. We need to look into this. So, uh, yeah, that's that's how where I also realized, you know, the massive difference between obviously handcrafted uh, recognition grammars, you know, how uh, we expect the user to say, I want to book a hotel. You know, we used to do that many, many decades ago. And of course, that can only work in very specific and perfect cases. Uh, so going from that to spontaneously spoken speech with a couple of cuffs in the middle and your child yeah. shouting in the back and a dog barking nearby and a car alarm going up, you know, it's like you need data to be able to, uh, to recognize the, the specific intents you're after, but with all that stuff going on. Exactly. Wow! That, oh I, no! Are you kidding me? That was that is so that is so impressive. That is so impressive, and oh, I want to ask you so many things. Um, I'll start by asking you about the lessons from your time at at startups and and small to medium companies. Um, what were some of the lessons that you learned during that time that then helped you uh, start your own company um, in in right. the future? Yeah. Oh, um, obviously, even having seen everything, working on your own company doesn't—you—you're never that prepared. <laughs> um, I agree I completely. Because, because obviously, even when I was working at the startup, well, okay, number one, there is no nine to ninety-five, right? Number one. Uh, there wasn't with a startup, there isn't with my own company, you know, it's like with a startup, you are expected to get there uh, like by 10 o'clock, which is late, but you're not really supposed to leave before seven. And then you have the after work drinks, which is also work. So mm -hmm. very, very long, extremely fun, but very, very long <laughs> days. Um, so with both startups and your own company, work and life mix a lot. There is a massive amount of multitasking always, uh, but yeah, flexibility and multitasking um, and resilience <laughs> are the yeah. main lessons. Uh, you need to have many hats. Uh, you need to do like your your technical thing, but also learn how to be a business person and how to sell yourself and do a bit of marketing and a bit of uh, you know business development and uh, and a bit of um, uh, uh, content content management uh, mm -hmm. and a bit of copywriting. You know, trying to sell yourself, your service, trying to refine your USP you know, what is different about my startup or what is different about my consultancy, uh, that is always, always going on. But yeah, uh, long hours, flexible, <laughs> flexible working, um, multiple hats, 
uh, resilience. And, tell, uh, yeah. <laughs> tell me, tell me more about the resilience because what I found is in the bigger the company, the the more stable uh, the the emotional ride is. Um, that in in a big company you might have good weeks and bad weeks and you might have you know good few months where you're like slowly building up to something and you get to a really good place and you, then you slowly start to taper down and that might take several months in a big company the smaller the company the shorter the cycles and in a startup at least from my experience what it's felt like it's like a roller coaster ride that is just up and down where you might have a good hour <laughs> And then the next hour is terrible, and then the next hour it's good. Um, so t tell me more. How has it been in your experience the the ride in startups, um, um, both while working in startups and your own company, and and how have you developed the the resilience required to make it through all this time? Right. Oh God. Uh, so so yeah, like you said, both with startups and and with your own consultancy, you have the good hours, good days, good weeks, good months, good years. And the fact, yeah. I guess I, I guess it was never like a, as bad as a bad year, but you may have the, the, a month of a lull and then a month where five different projects are, are landing at the same time. And then of course, you know, so basically in the, what you quickly learn is that in the quiet times, you learn to really relax because you know there's about to be a storm around the corner. So trying to reserve energy, yeah, that, that is definitely something that I realize now <laughs> I must have been making. And then also that uh, every, every single connection is valuable, even if they're in a different industry, uh, whether they they were a potential customer, an existing customer, not even a customer, you know, like someone yeah. you know through um, someone you you went to the same school with, you know, they can can always provide um, a new idea um, or a new valuable connection, either directly to them or through another connection that they have as a you know third like a fifth, sixth degree. Uh, uh, of a connection kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, learning to learning to uh, to use the quiet moments to your advantage. Learning to see connections and um, getting new ideas uh, through different avenues and even unexpected avenues. I guess this would be two things I can immediately think of. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And and what what has kept you going through the tough times? Um, I know that I know that in, in my yeah. case, like sometimes I've just I mean I'm generally a, a positive and optimistic person and, and um and which is why I end up, you know, in startups. Um, I, I think to a large to a large degree because because I can see a positive future, but um, regardless of that, there are times where things get really tough and and you have you know a few a few too many bad hours in a in a row and then that starts to sort of mount up. 
and I've definitely found myself in times where I'm just like, oh, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> Why did I put myself in this position? I could I could be having an easier life if I had made different decisions. Yeah, um, should I should I keep going? And um, and I, I I found that it, in myself in my case, and I'd love to hear how you how you get through those those tough times because. Um, in my case, obviously, I really lean on on, on my loved ones, um, but I also know that I need to take a break, um, that I I need to go and do something different for a bit, and um, and I find that in my case, I've learned that I don't I don't ask for help enough from my in general in general, so both from my team and from uh, from my loved ones, so. I, so then I, I, I tend personally, I tend to just like carry more and more burden and then it ends up like crushing me. And then yeah. I go, oh, I should speak that with my team. Well, then... you know. Yeah, that rings up well. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, how's, how's it been for you? The same thing, yeah. Um, I guess one thing that, that has kept me going is thinking, you know, I've, I've, put so much energy and yes. uh, sweat, blood and tears into other people's companies. Why should I stop for my own? Like nice. that, that has, has been something that has always kept me going because, uh, you know, in the times where like uh, VUI designers were like an exotic animal and mm. people were saying, okay, what do you do again here? Oh yeah, whatever. Uh, in those times, obviously, I was feeling worthless. Um, and then I said in my own company, more people need VUI designers. I, I have my customers who I... Uh, actually, that was also one thing that I, I noticed. When I was working for companies, mm. um, I, I don't know, I see the, the attitude, the client attitude is seems to be different. When I'm an employee, they see me as, or I, I got the feeling that uh, I was like, uh, um, it was more impersonal. Like they were seeing my company in me. They were not seeing me. Yeah. Whereas wow. my clients through my, my, my consultancy, like they come to me and they, they seem to be grateful for what I bring as, as a, you know, I personally bring. And um, or maybe it's also part of the timing because I said back then there, there wasn't much, you know, it wasn't a clear role, whereas now it is and, and people need it and they seek it out rather than us back then trying to justify a role. Um, but, but yes, through that and having gone through uh, this, this lack of appreciation when working at companies and getting appreciation working for my own consultancy like that that already makes all the extra effort and sweat and tears uh, worth it because uh, you know as i said when i was working for other companies and and people may may not appreciate my input and and it was still painful and i was still doing my best and then yes. now you know if i do the same and people appreciate it but i need to do extra work because there's I don't know, two competing deadlines or something, then you, I, I felt more motivated because I, I was already feeling more appreciated and also because I wanted my 
consultancy to make it because I've made other people's companies make it kind of if yes. that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's that's really nice. I'm really yeah. glad that I asked that. That is a really good perspective to say like why why would you yeah give up on your own company and efforts when you have it and for other people's um and i love i love the fact that the the that people are able to appreciate your your unique value more when you have your own company that's that's really um that's really great that's really great to to hear did you um, did you notice that happen happened slowly over time, or was it uh, was it a big change that you noticed when you started your company? A bit of both, because um, I felt that I I had more, so let's say prestige, uh, or more more prestige and more gravitas through my own company. I don't know because because you know it is it is a company. It's not like I'm not self-employed. You know, I I have I set up a limited company, and uh, maybe people know that uh, you know by doing this that that, that that is a big commitment. And maybe mm. I had already proven my commitment through setting up my company, and people can see that. But as I said, at the same time, there was also the timing was great because. Um, uh, you know, a couple, was it two years later that Siri came out and then, you know, then everybody started having smartphones, everybody had voice recognition on their phone, so people were getting more familiar with speech recognition, uh, whereas before it was like, oh, you work on IVRs, oh, you mean the things where you press one or two and they fail, you know, which was nothing like I was doing, and people, many people still think that, that IVRs is, you know, the touchstone. Uh, DTMF type of systems, and of course DTMF can always be used. It's it's a great fallback thing if nothing else works, if it's very loud or whatever. But yeah, uh, what was I saying? And and so there was a natural progression also of the market where mm. voice speech recognition became more mainstream because people had had it in their pockets. And then of course later was it 2014 or something with Ale the advent of Alexa. Now it's also cool and it's in your home and it's it's uh, it's everywhere because also Amazon as a big player I mean everybody was already kind of shopping through Amazon so it's a big name uh, therefore the smart speaker is also like automatically had great exposure and it became um, uh, more easily like uh, the reach was massive and and, and immediate so um, it was a natural progression in that speech recognition and voice has become more relevant through time. But as I said, I, I believe uh, I believe I'm right in my feeling or memory or both that uh, also having set up my own limited company automatically meant that I am committed and I'm I'm like uh, yeah committed and persistent, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Isn't it isn't it interesting as humans the that we have to send the right signals, um, yes. like and and that those those signals are are um, yeah picked up and it's so important, and that then they by sending those signals it really influences our behavior so much, um, 
as well as obviously the behaviors of others. That's that's really interesting. So tell me what what does a um, what what does a typical project look like for you? If obviously if there's such a thing, and if you can tell us about some some of the interesting uh, some interesting examples or stories that you that you've seen um, in in the last few years, obviously examples that you can share. But what what would a a typical project for you uh, look like? Right. So um, most of the times you. <laughs> Most of the times, and I guess that must go against uh, the current uh, agile development. Uh, the, most of the time, there was a lot of uh, to and fro with the client to specify mm. the, the um, requirements for the design. So, what should the system be doing? What kind of persona it should be um, uh, exhibiting? Uh, what specific tasks the the user should be able to do with your system? Uh, yeah, what kind of um, uh, user groups they they represent? You know, age and um, familiarity with uh, systems, familiarity with uh, your subject matter. Um, so a lot of work going uh, on um, uh, requirement specification, meaning uh, meetings with uh, the client, uh, presenting call flows, presenting sample dialogues, uh, presenting persona profiles, you know, for, for, the, for the system. Uh, things that, that, that is, take a couple of months, really. Yeah, exactly. I can imagine. That is that is really interesting because I, I do think that one of the, one of the areas where um, Agile can can hurt you as a business uh, and can hurt you in your in your projects uh, is that um, the the bias towards action before clearly defining a problem and and I know that in myself like I've made this mistake many many times to say like let's just start and the answer will emerge and and especially when it's when it's you know in in data science like they're complex problems. And so much is dependent on on clearly defining what the outcome is, how it's going to be used, what good looks like. Um, that once, if at least I've I've learned by making the mistake many times, if you don't have that north star, then you could spend you know months of agile work where you're you're busy, 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 and then you look up and you're nowhere near to where right. something exactly. that's that's useful. Um, so I do I do agree that. Um, and I see it completely necessary to have uh, clarity and agreement on on the output and how it's going to be used, et cetera, and defining defining the problem and 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 having clarity in the solution. Um, and so I wonder if if the expectations from the clients, if you think that they they sit on that side on on clearly defining outcomes, or do you think that the requirement specification uh, start to go into a, a deeper design um, that that essentially is trying to uh, is trying to prevent too many problems ahead of time? Where do you think in the in the spectrum um, between you know agile on one side, a good balance, and then completely yeah. having to have everything planned on the other side? My my experience has been that um, like the my my client, I mean the end client, the business mm. people, mm. almost have 
um, visibility over both the need for detailed design and things that they really need to sign off beforehand and the pressures of having to deliver, you know, having a, a specific deliverable deadline, whatever, one month down the line or, or, mm -hmm. or uh, two months down the line. Um, so there is this, there has always, there's always <laughs> tension between, or in my experience, maybe now things are completely different and I'll talk about that too. Uh, VUI designers have always fought <laughs> with uh, the software engineers and the coders because, <laughs> because as you say, the, the 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 coders want to start coding away, and they cannot see the point of spending a week or let alone a month uh, trying to specify exactly what the system uh, should be able to do. They just want to make sure that things work, whatever database. Um, calls work or things like that, which are of course valuable, but to say do away with uh, detailed design is suicide uh, because uh, there are so many things you need to take into consideration beforehand and so that you can keep consistency in the course of the project and even, even so that you have the system modular enough to be agile enough to mm. basically modify uh, and bring in new specifications or ex make extensions and uh, tiny changes or even bigger changes further down the line. Uh, so there's this tension between the, 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 the UI designer and the coder. And I, I found in some cases I've had customers where they say, oh, I see your point, the UI designer, I see your point, coder, let's do something whatever and we kind of find some agreement in the middle so yeah instead of spending spending a month on design let's spend at least a week on design and then you know get on with it but mm -hmm. I, I found it interesting that i've seen actually wisdom in uh, in business circles but of course there, there are also sometimes there's also there are also the marketing guys who may promise too much to the end customer, things that neither the VUI designer nor the coder will agree with. <laughs> and then there are yeah. arguments with them. But I found that like pure business people uh, have a, some, sometimes have, have more wisdom than, um, uh, than the coders and uh, Definitely than the marketing, the marketing guys. So, but yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, I've had many arguments in my working life. And as you say, you know, when I I I, I happen to 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 it's like in in considering the agile management, um, uh, the definition of agile, uh, an agile project. It's like, oh my god, this is. This is exactly the definition of my worst nightmare. <laughs> Start coding without designing anything and hope for the best. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. I love that. <laughs> oh, it definitely has it definitely has its flaws. Um I completely agree with that. And then and um 
so so there's definitely an, a, a need for uh, clarity and specification upfront, and and what happens uh, what happens after that in 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 a usual project for you and how is yeah. that those next stages? So, yeah, then you 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 start having um, uh, okay. Then you 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 try to create some kind of mockups, which in my case it's uh, it's usually example dialogues. You know how things will uh, will progress both in a normal flow in a normal scenario, and in so the the different scenario, both the good ones and the bad ones. You know that you didn't recognize the system doesn't have that bit of information or uh, there is a you cannot connect to the back end or you know you also try to define and exemplify bad scenario and you know like uh, suboptimal scenarios too uh, and through those you know even even both the coder and the the business uh, guys and the marketing guys will see that there are some things they really need to uh, sign off early on, mm. like, uh, you know, if the system fails three times, what do we do? Do we send the caller to to a call center agent or do we keep them in a loop because we really need them to do everything, to, you know, to self-serve? Um, these are things you really need to des design up front because uh, there's no point in, uh, you know, how can you start uh, coding before um, deciding whether uh, you you need to hand off to to an agent to a human, or maybe hand off to a different automated system, say a purely DTMF system, for example, uh, when you give up on speech, or you know mm -hmm. these are things you need to, to uh, decide on early on. And through these example dialogues, you can see all the different potential pain points, uh, as well as things as well as things like. Um, how will my system sound if I use a casual language, or um, mm. will it sound too um, too too stuck up if I use too formal language and things like that? Yes. And then through through define, defining the the language of the system, you um, and also the actual how you formulate a question uh, that will also determine the kind of grammar you want to be able to, um, the kind of coverage, language coverage you want the system to be able to uh, to have. Uh, like, uh, do I just ask them, what can I help you with today? Or, mm. <laughs> or do I say, oh, with our system, you can uh, check your balance and make a payment. What would you like to mm. do, you know, like specify mm. and, and limit, uh, um, limit the expectations of the user, really? Uh, so through these example dialogues, you can uh, you can think about and decide the persona of the system, the, the com grammar complexity, the, the the language that the system uses, um, how formal and informal can it can be, and then you you create a mock-up, and then you you know there's loads of cy cycles of uh, um, uh, internal testing. And then uh, you uh, try it out on uh, a specific percentage of the um, of the real caller population, and then you do speech analytics and you analyze real world, you know, real recordings to see how people are uh, doing with the system, how is your system doing, uh, how people react to it, and what types of things we don't yet cover, mm -hmm. and um, and then it's an endless cycle, basically of a tuning cycle. 
and uh, call monitoring tuning that may may happen every six months or every year or something depending on uh, 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 the the willingness of the client correct yeah <laughs> and, also, and, yeah. and what are some some things that you some interesting things that you found when you um do speech analytics uh, either for other systems that have been in place or when you've gone back to to look at at your systems um, right. Do you have do you have any any examples or stories that you can share about um, anything interesting yeah. or memorable that has come up? Well, first of all, uh, it's hugely entertaining because there are lots of square words, <laughs> <laughs> as you can imagine, <laughs> and some of them are so innovative. Uh, but I will not repeat them here because I'm not going to get blocked. <laughs> uh, very innovative swearing, yes. Uh, very uh, yeah, original swear swearing. Uh, I also found uh, equally entertainingly that uh, some, um, I guess, older users, because obviously we don't know, you know, the, the in the systems I've worked on, it's it's pretty much impossible to identify who is who is speaking in the the, the, the recordings unless they actually say their name and their account number and whatever that I could <laughs> check later kind of thing. Uh, but that's more, uh, that usually doesn't happen because usually the speech recordings come with the sensitive data being like blipped out anyway. Yes. But but anyway, you can tell from, uh, from the, the voice quality that someone is an older user and perhaps have never do not know the concept of an IVR and that uh, there may be an mm. automated system speaking so naturally and non-robotically because nowadays, of course, we also use, uh, you don't use TTS, you use recordings with voice talent. So that means mm. with real actors. So it sounds really natural. And of course, some people think, oh, it's, it understood what I just said and I didn't just say press one. So, and it speaks naturally, it must be a human. And so, I've heard many older ladies and, and gentlemen say, oh, thank you, love, or, you know, oh, that's really nice of you, you know, as if they were speaking to a young lady on the other, uh, um, uh, the other side of the phone. So that was also, uh, that's always surprising to see those people who think they're speaking to a human. Um, and of course, all the, the more blunt, but very important thing, things of saying, you know, like um, uh, something that did come up, you know, how you formulate a question is really important because mm. um, uh, like if you say something like, and do you have your account number? That's a tricky question because someone may just say yes, but the specific system may be actually listening for the account number. Mm. So. So are you just listening for a yes or are you listening for a yes? It's one, two, three, four, five. If you are expecting the latter, you're going to fail because you're going to say, uh, I didn't get an account number. I just said, Yo, please tell me your account number. You just created an extra step there for no reason. You confused uh, the caller for no reason and uh, you, you had them in the IVR for longer because your question was not clear. So, you know, Things like that, uh, or or even things like um, 
when you give your account number and it's got say i don't know eight digits how many people give it in uh, um like natural how many people use natural numbers like 28 75 68 yes. how many people say one two three five six i said like how how many groupings do they use? How much silence they leave? How, how much do they pause between number groups? And these are things that come up when you study the recordings. And uh, of course, they will determine how you tune the system afterwards to say, uh, change the timeout settings so that you let the, the caller, um, you let the, you have the caller, you give the caller more time to say an eight digit number because they pause between groups of, uh, you know, threes or whatever. Uh, so, so yeah, these are, yeah, things that, that definitely came up, but yeah, swearing is always fantastic. <laughs> and also, interesting also how, um, because in a system, like in an ideal world, the whatever the IVR has recognized, uh, should come up on the call center agent's screen yes. so they don't repeat some questions. So, you know, sometimes you uh, you would often hear callers say, oh, I just gave the system my account number. Why do I need to give it again? And maybe mm -hmm. the, the, the agent already has it on the system, but they need to confirm mm -hmm. for security reasons. And then, so it's, so it's tricky. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's also interesting to to hear um, what what people say while waiting in like on hold for an agent. What yes. they say about the company, what they say about the system. Oh, you know. Oh, I just repeated my whatever my account number five times and didn't didn't get it. You know, stupid system or whatever. Or or they may complain about the company. You know, oh, this is the fifth time I'm calling and. Yes. Uh, after getting through the IVR, I never, you know, I'm waiting an endless queue. And then, you know, what do you do about having people wait in a queue? Do you try to keep them in the IVR for longer so that they don't have to wait in a queue? Do you play ads in the queue or will that mm. irritate them even more? Uh, there are, it's, a, it's a, like a treasure, Correct. <laughs> it's a treasure chest of information. Exactly, exactly. Like, do you do you give them disclaimers um, to prepare them for the type of discussions they're going to have? Um, it's really, it's really interesting, and it's and it's the the face of the company with the customer. You know, that's why it's so important because essentially everything that the company does just comes in into that contact with the with the customer. Um, so it, it yeah, you're you're representing uh, the entire company. So tell me, where where do you see where do you see IVRs um, going into the in the future and the the um, you know voice UI design, the fact that this is the this is the face of the company, this is the you know the main interaction that um, that people would have when they reach out to the company. They might be getting services delivered in the background, but whenever they need something, this is the 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 right. yeah. the representative um where where do you think this this area is is going in the future right so first of all i want to say that uh, of course in the meantime we've also had the explosion of chatbots yes. so this means the same companies try to automate kind of the, the same types of tasks 
through, you know, chat text based. Um, and and then the challenge is to ah, to integrate uh, mm. the channel so that um, if you jump from one channel to the next, you know, it can be smooth and 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 seamless and the information carries on to the the other channel um uh, of course still preserving the same you know like the, the brand and and and, mm -hmm. and all the things but also managing uh, user expectations so what can the ivr do what can the chatbot do what do i get to do with a with an age with a human agent if i get to one uh, later what do i do what kind of information confirmation or whatever i get through sms um so that's that's uh i think uh, that is happening now everywhere so the, most companies will not only have an ivr now they're also moving to the chatbots uh which but but that doesn't mean that ivrs will go away because uh, some people always prefer to get to speak to someone on the phone and of course the ivr will always be useful in uh, trying to route, do you say route in, in Australia too? Uh, yes. the call to the to the right department, you know, to the mm. right um call center uh, agent group. So that uh, you know you don't have to go through endless conversations and be uh, put on a on hold to a different agent and all that. You know, you try to get to the right type of agent uh, skill first time. And um so in terms of I've IVRs, uh, I think that even if I never design a new IVR from scratch ever again in my life, uh, I will always have work <laughs> trying to make existing IVRs more usable because there are so many really bad IVRs out there because they were probably designed ages ago, they were because they were designed by a coder, not a UI designer. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, and and also because you know other expectations change, people uh, um, get 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 more familiar with special cognition with uh, with IVRs themselves, etc. Um, I, I have I have also designed and, uh, or been involved uh, with chatbots too. And then you can uh, you can start with a chatbot, and then they give you a link, and you you connect to an uh, IVR. You know, you can still that can still uh, be the case. Uh, but what is definitely interesting is now the, with the advent of the smart speakers, um, mm. many people want to get on that bandwagon too. And um, they are quite similar, but there are so many differences too. Because, uh, oh, you have so many different, so many um, uh, challenges. You have, um, you have the issue that the the, the, the voice assistant uh, is is working with many different skills. So this means that it doesn't only work with, say, I've got an IVR for, say, I'm a bank, and I've got an IVR for my bank and a chatbot for my bank, and I also mm -hmm. want an Alexa skill. Uh, so if uh, the user has activated uh, has has got multiple, or say just two, but different bank skills. You know, one for whatever HSBC and one for Barclays. And uh, the challenge is when you say uh, something like, "I want to check my balance." 
you need to somehow the the, the, the voice assistant needs to somehow design which skill do I yes. what initiative do I get which skill do I present first? Do I say, oh you usually like uh, the, the the logic he usually brings up the HSBC skill, so I'll just offer that straight away mm. for convenience. And maybe they can say, no, actually, I want the Barclays one. Uh, so this, they call it the discoverability thing. So you know which which skill should get activated and how you switch between them. You know, I may want to do something with the HSBC one, and then I want to do something with the with the other one, and you know. How will mm. that switch happen? Uh, and then the other one is, of course, that through using uh, Alexa or Google Assistant or Bixby, you don't no longer have access to the recordings that you have through the IVR. Correct. For privacy and security and all these things. I mean, security, yeah, privacy uh, issues. So this means that uh, it's difficult to know when you try to analyze the data for your skill, you know, how good did my HSBC skill do? It's difficult to know what what users really said when it failed or, you know, oh, why do most users stop at that step? We, we don't know because, I don't know, Alexa or Google, Google Assistant thought it recognized this, so it should have worked. Why do we don't know? So that's a big challenge, and um, that is one reason why, I mean, uh, right now I see it as very difficult, of course, for Amazon or Google or Samsung to say, okay, developers of the world, here are all the recordings, do whatever you want with them. Very, very difficult. So then there needs to be a different solution, which is uh, it's very difficult. So, so that is why I I don't see IVRs going away because if you want that level of granularity into the data, so that you can mm. uh, do speech analytics and and tuning and uh, and get more insight into what your customers really want and where they fail and what your pain points are, I don't see IVRs going away. But of course, I see more and more adoption of skills and 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 um, uh, um, actions and and capsules and 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 all these different uh, modules. But but then, of course, as I said, we have the <clears throat> the problem of competing similar skills. Yes. And, yes. Uh, yes. So yeah, the future <laughs> the future is multicolor. <laughs> The future is multicolor, but uh, yeah, as I said, I don't think IVRs are going away. Uh, exactly, and a lot of a lot of demand for for you know NLP practitioners and oh, um, yes. to to work across across the board. Um, this is oh, very, at the same very time, I need yes, sorry? To, sorry, at the same time, I need to, to point out, but with this with the advent of um, you know the smart speakers and all the different skills and all that, because you have so many people, of course, who want to get into voice, right? Hmm. Um, they're not UI designers. They are either coders, which is the same problem that I was, <laughs> I addressed about, you know, it's like well, what was happening with the IVRs and the eager coders who want to get on with it and they make design decisions of themselves by themselves. 
uh, with uh, the smart speaker skills, actions, and, and, and capsules, you have people who have never, you know, who are not designers <clears throat> designing. They're also not linguists, and they they make they take decisions on how to ask a question. Um, and they may be too formal, you know. They may say, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh. I don't recognize this input, which is something a designer would never, ever, yeah. ever yeah. <laughs> write in the prompt. Um, so you have people who are not linguists, they're not VUI designers. They may be designers of uh, web apps or, or, you know, like visual designers, but also that doesn't make you a voice designer. Uh, or they may come from marketing and they, so they, they're used to writing copy, but that's mm. not copy for speech recognition mm-hmm. because they don't know how speech recognition works. So uh, while skills and actions and uh, and, and capsules are uh, becoming more prevalent and and uh, companies that have an IVR or now also chatbot, they also want to get into that space, uh, I see more and more skills and actions <laughs> capsules designed by people who don't know how uh, language words language works, uh, speech recognition works, uh, user experience for voice works, spawning out quickly bad skills, actions and capsules. And that will be a massive challenge now to not bring everyone else down (laughs) through quickly written and published uh, skills, actions and capsules. And uh, but but I think in in the medium term, people will realize that uh, thought needs to be put into the VUI design and the, the language and the context and the persona, uh, like it happened also with the IVRs, you know. There were all the bad IVRs were also IVRs that, that people uh, di- didn't design, <laughs> but developed robustly, but, uh, you know, not, not paying uh, attention to not considering the linguistics aspects and the, the, the usability aspects. And people were burned and then they tried to fix things and probably the same thing will happen with smart speaker skills and actions and uh, captions too. Exactly, exactly. And and um, by by having so many new ones coming in of, of probably, you know, uh, average quality, Hopefully, it means that the good ones get to stand out, and um, and then the bar raises um, for from a user perspective. Maria, this has been amazing. Um, thank you, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your journey, your perspectives, yeah, everything that you've done. I, <laughs> um, I think one of your questions was uh, what I learned in the past five years. Was that one of the questions? I mean, I've told you a lot of things that I've learned, but uh, I need to mention yeah. my five-year-old. <laughs> I need to mention my five-year-old because, uh, no, no, I yes. think one of the questions was one of the things you're most proud of. And I, I want to say that I'm most proud of uh, how quickly I put him to sleep to make this recording. <laughs> that is a real challenge. Yes. Oh, well done. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, 
LinkedIn or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.